Dear God, we start tonight by thanking you for your word and uh, by taking a minute to submit ourselves to it. What you say through your word, we want to obey. Help us to understand who we are better um, so that we can understand how to live better and uh, speak to us as we read through this this evening. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, real quick, I want to start you off with a quote. It's a semi-famous quote um, by this uh, preacher by the name of Stuart Briscoe. And and you may have heard it. It's one of my favorites. Um, So I'm going to give you this quote, and what I want you to do is I want you to take uh, one, two minutes with the people next to you, and I want you to kind of try and dissect what you think this quote means. And maybe if you could put this quote in your own words, like if you were trying to re-explain this to someone, how would you say it in your own words? So it's from Stuart Briscoe. It says this, If we taught people who they are, we probably wouldn't have to spend as much time telling them what to do. I'll say that again. If we taught people who they are, we probably wouldn't have to spend as much time telling them what to do. Okay, take... Take a minute there, discuss what does Stuart Briscoe mean when he says that? How would you say that in your own words? Okay, do that now. weeks ago, two weeks ago, we turned this corner in Ephesians, um, where we kind of moved from the first three chapters where all Paul does is talk about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then at four, that's kind of the hinge, chapter four, verse one, is the hinge in this book where he then moves and begins to talk about how we should live in light of that. And we mentioned this on that night, that the order to those things is key. That Christianity is unique from every other uh, belief system and world religion in that we do not do things in order to get God to love us, in order to get Him to accept us. Uh, God already loves us. God accepts us in Christ, and therefore we do things. Therefore we want to obey Him. And the order of that really is critical, so it's really important. When we made that 
turn there in Ephesians 4. The first thing Paul begins to do is he talks about how the church works, how this new people that God is forming through Christ works together. And as each part, uh, as each person does its part in love, it's like a body that it's building itself up and growing and growing. And then Scott took us into uh, the end of chapter 4 and, and into uh, chapter 5 a little bit last night, where, where what Paul begins to do is he starts to outline kind of ethical instruction. This is what it looks like to live the Christian life now. And he begins to explain those things to them. He says it's things like speaking the truth to one another. It's, it's not letting anger control us. It's using our words for building one another up instead of tearing down. That's what those things are. Today or tonight, we're kind of picking up where we left off. We're still actually kind of in the middle of this ethical instruction. As Paul outlines, all right, here is what the Christian life looks like in real time. This is what it looks like on the ground to live out this kind of life. But I want to go back, before we jump in, I want to go back to the sentence that started this section. To the odd statement that Paul makes as sort of a a kind of header for what we got into last week and what we're getting into this week. Look back at verse 4, or sorry, chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. Verses uh, 17 through 18, he says this. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. So this is kind of the header. You should not live as the Gentiles live. Okay, that's, that's kind of the header for these things. Now, the, the thing that's weird about that is uh, he's talking about these people these Gentiles in third person and saying, don't ever live like those guys. Uh, but the, the issue is that he's actually speaking to Gentiles. Everyone that he's writing to is Gentiles. So it would be one thing for me to stand up in this room and say to you, hey, listen, whatever you do, don't act like those crazy Canadians, all right? Those guys, they're weird, they're kind of squirrely, do not act like them, right? And you go, okay, yeah, I get it, we're, we're, we're all talking bad about Canadians tonight, that's cool, right? But if I stood up in here and I said, hey, whatever you guys do, don't act like those moron Americans, okay? Those Americans are just idiots. Do whatever you got to do, right? There'd be part of you that would go, I get it, right? But then part of you would go, okay, wait a second. Do you realize you're talking about us, right? We're, we're Americans. And I wonder if there's anyone as they're reading this letter going, wait a second, Paul. Do you not know as you're saying all these things about the bad ways that Gentiles live, about their feudal thinking and all these things, do you not realize that we are them, that you're... That we're Gentiles? And here's what I think. I think if one of them would have gone and said that to Paul, I think Paul's response would have been, not anymore. No, that's, that's not who you are. In fact, he's pretty clear to say that in other places like Galatians, that in Christ there is therefore no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no slave or free, um, that all are one in Christ Jesus. And, and he's not saying that when you become a Christian, that all your racial identity or your gender identity or whatever all just uh, disappears. He's just saying that that is not where your identity is primarily drawn from. And so he can say to them, don't live like those Gentiles do, because what he's saying is you're not that anymore. That's not who you are. And, and this is really um, critical. What, what Paul wants them to see is your identity now is saints. Holy ones, the people of God, his sons and daughters, your identity. And this is his favorite phrase that if you've paid attention to all you've seen over and over and over again in Ephesians, 
in Christ. He uses that phrase probably more than anything else in this entire book. You are in Christ. That's who you are. That's how God sees you. He sees you through the lens of his son Jesus, and he sees his righteousness in you. That's who you are, and that's uh, what Briscoe's quote is all about. In fact, I actually left off those two words. In, in the original quote, Briscoe says, if we taught people who they are in Christ, we probably wouldn't have to spend as much time telling them what to do. The idea behind that statement is that our Christian ethic flows from our identity. When I know who I am, the way I ought to live starts to flow naturally from that. The more I grasp who I am, what I do becomes a natural outworking, a natural overflow of that. Paul continues to remind us of that throughout this book, and we'll see some of it tonight as we read. Chapter 5, verse 3 is where we're starting tonight. He says this, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So, Make sure that these things are not a part of you, Paul says. And the sins that he mentions in this list are really kind of interesting because these might be the most American sins in all the Bible. Like if you were to stand up and tell me that this letter was written to some church in the Midwest in America in 2020, I'd totally buy it. Because these are, this, is, this is like the, the fundamental uh, things that Americans throw themselves into as they turn in towards their sin. He mentions sexual immorality. Um, the The word, the Greek word there is porneia, from where we get the word pornography from. And and anytime that word is mentioned, it is a catch-all word for any kind of sex or sexual activity outside of a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. Anything beyond that. Anything that has to do with um, any sexual activity between two people who are not married or anything close to sexual activity. And and he even kind of goes on to add it with a more catch-all word of impurity is the next word. And so this is a similar idea. So this would include also the things that you're dwelling on in your mind, the things that you're looking at, the things that you're uh, engaging at or taking, kind of consuming in. He throws in greed, which he'll say is tantamount to idolatry because you are putting your faith and your hope in getting more and more of something else rather than more and more of God. And he throws in crude joking, uh, coarse joking, those things. Uh, by the way, just so you know, that what, what we're reading here, it, it's sort of, it's a version of what we call a vice list. And, and a vice list was a very, fairly popular um, method in, in writing and describing kind of ways to live back in the first century, not just in the Bible. Uh, but other like Hellenistic writers, Greek writers would use these things called vice lists where they would just list off what kind of a bad life looks like. And the Bible does it in several places. And in almost every one of them, sexual immorality is always the very first one. So always sits up at the top, which leads to just a question, why? Why does the Bible make such a big deal out of sex? Why does the Bible make such a big deal out of sexual immorality being kind of a key defining trait of what it is to not live in tune with God. Um, 
it seems, it, it's, it's one of those things where like in America, like we get today, like I get stealing. I get speaking out against stealing, Paul. I get speaking out against lying. I get, but, but in a loving relationship in which no one is getting hurt and you have two consenting adults, why does the Bible seem to have such a problem with that? I don't have too much time to get into it. We're going to, in the next few weeks, actually jump into a kind of little mini-series on relationships that you'll hear about more, and we'll probably get to talk some more about it. But let me give you kind of a three-minute breakdown. The reason that this matters so much to the writers of the Bible, to Christianity, to God himself, is because the Christian view of sex is that it is far too important and far too beautiful a gift to cheapen. And an improper use of it cheapens it, and it also cheapens human beings who are made in God's image. When I sleep with or lust after someone that I have not committed my whole life to, that I have not committed my whole life to them for their whole life, to taking every part of their life, what I'm actually doing is I'm severing off this one aspect of that person, the physical aspect, And I'm taking that and then using it for my own pleasure and for my own benefit. Utilizing this one little piece of them that I can can bring for my enjoyment without committing myself to any other part of them. And the idea of sex is that it brings about like physical oneness and physical unity. And the way God set it up is that I'm not supposed to take part in physical oneness with someone if I am not willing to also give myself in emotional oneness and in legal oneness and in financial oneness and in every other part that all of my life belongs to them and all of their life belongs to me. When I married my wife, Amy, um, I didn't get to say to her, hey, how about you just move in because you know she had a lot of student loans at the time. And, and for me to go, you know, I, I like you. I kind of like where this is going. I don't really want to jump into like the whole like student loan thing and the financial thing. You keep your bank account, I'll keep mine, but we'll live together and we'll kind of do that thing. No, no, no. I, I get all of her, I get none of her. I don't get to just pick and choose pieces of her that I want for myself. And that's what sexual sin does. Whether it's with a person, even if that person is willing, I'm still cheapening and degrading person, bringing them down to one little piece that I get for my joy and benefit, rather than a whole person that is to be honored in the image of God and that I'm supposed to commit my whole life to. That's why the Bible makes a big deal out of those things. Um, now, as you read the rest of this passage, one of the really, uh, a really important key, if you want to get a, get a better grasp of Scripture, is to look in text for contrasts. To look for when a writer holds two uh, ideas up in juxtaposition against each other. And Paul does that multiple times in this text. So as we read through it, pay attention to the way Paul uses contrast and the things that he kind of contrasts up against each other. Uh, Look at verse 6. We'll move on from there. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. That these things is sexual immorality and impurity and greed and crude joking. God's wrath is coming because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. So for as long as Christianity has existed, there have been people arguing that sin itself is not that big a deal. After all, I mean, Jesus died for it, right? And, and grace. I mean, we believe in grace. He forgives us for our sins. And so it's not, we don't need to get all caught up in um, always trying to be super holy and all of those things. Um, Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty arguments about that. Yes, 
Our life is based on grace. Yes, the forgiveness of God is always bigger than your sin, but that is not an excuse to continue moving away from him or to moving against him in those things. Paul says, don't let anyone be deceived by those empty or foolish arguments. God's wrath is coming down on those things and will come down on those things. Now we come to this verse that I believe kind of summarizes the whole section that we're reading tonight. And one scholar says that this verse we're about to read summarizes all of Ephesians. And actually he goes so far as to say, you could say that all of Paul's theology about the Christian life is summed up in this one verse right here. Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. So, according to Paul, if you look through kind of his theology and the way he views life, he believes that there are essentially two realms at work that a person falls into. Um, The first one you could call uh, the realm of the world, or you could call it the realm of darkness. He kind of interchanges these words. Or... The realm or the domain of sin. This is where people live. Um, The second one is the realm of Christ or of light. Or sometimes he'll use this phrase righteousness. Okay? And the idea is that everyone lives in one of these two realms, one of these two worlds, you're always in one or the other. Um, Paul says that everyone finds themselves here, but Colossians 1.13 says this, that he, that is God, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And and so what he says is, you don't push your way into this realm. You don't uh, pole vault your way across into this realm. You place your faith in Jesus and God himself rescues you and delivers you into this. The other interesting thing that Paul gets at, though, is whatever realm you dwell in, you begin to take on the nature and the characteristics of that. So the more you dwell in the realm of sin, the more your life becomes dominated and marked by sin. The more that becomes who you are. But when you are placed over here, and as I said earlier, this is his favorite way to talk about it, when you are in Christ, then you begin to take on the characteristics and the nature of the one that you are in. And you begin to be like him. And so what Paul says here is not um, you should shine like a light. He doesn't say um, you have Christ's light in you. He says you once were darkness, but now you are light in Jesus. You are what Jesus is. He is moving in you to become those kinds of things. Um, And so what Paul is getting at in verse 8 when he says is, hey, you used to walk in darkness, but now you are light, is he's making this statement. He says the reason you don't do those sins is it's bigger than just that's not appropriate for you. Hey, you're a Christian. You need to act better than that. That's not, that's, it's, it's bigger than that. That's, that's part of it, but it's bigger. He's saying that's not who you are. It's like if, if Jeff Bezos, the, uh, the Amazon CEO, okay, um, was, was driving down the street one day and he sees some uh, poor, like, orphan kid on the side of the road 
begging and asking for change so he can feed himself for the day. And, and somewhere in Jeff Bezos' heart, he, he finds this deep compassion for this kid. And so he adopts this kid and he takes him in as his own, which means what belongs to Jeff Bezos belongs to this kid. It's his now. And he adopts him and he brings him into his home. And now this kid is part of his family and, and living with him. And then one day Jeff is driving to work and he looks out on the side of the road and he sees that kid, his son, sitting on the road begging for change. What Jeff would stop and tell him is, hey, you realize not just you don't have to do that, but that's not you anymore. You're not the kid who has to beg for money because you've been given a new reality. And this is what Paul is talking about to us. You don't have to. It's not just don't do these things. It's, it's, that's not even who you are. It didn't even fit with the reality that has come that you have been placed into Christ. Verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up sleeper and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So here we see that as we dwell in Christ, we begin to do what Jesus does. And that is that we bring the works of darkness into the light. That we begin to expose those things and, and show them for what they really are. Now the word for expose can also be translated, and in several places in the, the New Testament it is translated, to uh, convict or confront. So it's not just like a, a exposing sin just to show that it's really bad. It is, it is trying to bring whoever is in that sin into that darkness into the light. It's trying to convince them of the truth and bring them over. It says, that's, that's what you do now. You don't join in darkness. You bring darkness into the light. That's, that's part of what your role is. Um, and then he uses this verse 14, which we think is maybe some sort of ancient like first century hymn or blessing that the church might used to repeat whenever they gathered together. Get up sleeper and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, one another in the fear of Christ. Now, that sounds like a bunch of different commands and instruction that he gave to you. Um, essentially, actually, he only gave like three commands in there. I think maybe four technically, but three main commands. The rest is just explanation of those. The first command is this, pay careful attention to the way that you live. And you do that by being wise, by making the most of the time that you have, and by discerning Christ's will. Now, when he talks about be sure that you discern Christ's will, he's not talking about the way we use what, trying to figure out what God's will is. That is, who should I marry? What major should I uh, enroll in? What, what town should I live in? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the revealed will of God. Be able to see and know from the scriptures what God wants in your life uh, each and every day. Second thing 
major command here is don't get drunk with wine, which leads to a wasted life. So if the first is be intentional with your life, he says don't get drunk with wine because that leads to a wasteful kind of life. Um, and the contrast of being drunk with wine, I don't know if you've noticed these contrasts, light, darkness, who you are, who you are, or who you were and who you are now, these kinds of things. Um, but the contrast to this is being filled by the Spirit. And he says we do this by speaking and singing psalms and hymns to Jesus, by giving thanks in the name of Jesus, and by submitting to one another in the fear of Jesus. Um, now, the form, just so you know, of that word, that verb there in the Greek where it says be, be filled with the Holy Spirit, um, the way that, the, that that verb is actually laid out is to imply continuous action. So it's more like continually be filled with the Spirit. Be filled over and over and over again with the Spirit. And uh, these two commands, especially the first and the third, um, pay careful attention to how you live and be filled with the Spirit, are really important instructions. The question is, what exactly do they mean, and how do we do that exactly? We're going to get into that on the other side of the break, but first we're going to pause for just a second. You need to use the restroom or just stretch your legs. We can do that and jump back in. All right. Um, one of the... Uh, deceptively hardest parts of parenting is getting your kids to eat well, getting them to eat right. Uh, it is, it is a difficult thing. Alec knows what I'm talking about. You know how that goes, man. Um, uh, it is a, it is a weirdly hard. I mean, I guess it's not weird because kids naturally want to eat what they want to eat. They naturally want to eat junk. They don't want to eat things that are good for them. And so it's hard to do that. Now, I like this is one of those areas where the Lord humbled me because I remember being that guy. I grew up in a house where like my parents just like we were too poor to be picky. Right. And so it's like you're just eating what's there. Right. Um, and uh, and and so we just did. We just ate what was in front of us. We weren't very picky on that stuff. And I remember I, I, picky people were always kind of a pet peeve for me. And it was always kind of was like, and I used to make, this is one of the few like little like promises I swore when I'm a parent, my kids are never going to be big. My kids are going to eat what, whatever I put in front of them. And then God came and he took all of that and he shoved it right back into my face, um, shoved it down my throat, unlike my kids who won't put food down their throat. Um, and, and like it gave me three really picky kids. And it might be me. It might be that I'm a bad parent and I can't get them to do those things. I don't know. Um, but we struggle. And with all three of them, they all have kind of their different things that they like and don't like and, and different things that we're working on. Uh, Hadley's our youngest. She's seven. And the thing with Hadley, again, they, they all have got several things. But one of the big things with Hadley was getting her to like drink stuff. Like... We, we would, like, Amy's real big on them getting a lot of water and high, staying hydrated and all that stuff. Um, and so she's always wanting to drink a bunch in the morning before they go and all those things. And Hadley just didn't. Um, and just wouldn't drink very much of anything, I'll say. It wasn't just, like, healthy water. Like, we give her, like, you know, every now and then she gets a little can of soda. And she'll, like, only finish, like, half of that. Um, her brother Hudson, on the other side, other hand, is just like double fisting, chugging, you know, his soda, her soda, and anything else that's all right. And we got to like slow him down because he'll drink whatever he has. He'll drink it before the food is even out on the table. Um, but Hadley like just does not 
did not get thirsty very often. At least she used to not. And, and wouldn't drink hardly anything that we put in front of her, except for this one thing. And it wasn't something that we put in front of her. And it wasn't something that we wanted her to be drinking. Um, but that is that um, oftentimes I would come around the corner during bath time at night and I would find her drinking the bath water. Like she was, uh, I know, like, in any shape, in any shape before, like sometimes, sometimes it would be like just from the faucet, which is still a little gross, but it's like, okay, at least it's like coming straight from there. Sometimes she would have the cup in there that we'd use for shampoo, and she'd just be scooping up Big Joe's cup, you know what I mean, Eskimo Joe's, throwing that thing back. Sometimes, sometimes. I would come around the corner and I would see her, uh, I would see her literally uh, like sucking water out of the rag. And, uh, I know, listen, and some of you, some of you are like me, okay, and like bathroom stuff in general just grosses me out a little bit, like it all just kind of all has real icky and... And so, like, I would come around and I would see her doing that, and it really, I would get, like, I would be somewhat between angry and dry heaving at the same time, right? <laughs> so it would be like, Hadley, you can't, oh, yeah, right? And I'm getting, like, I would really kind of get frustrated and angry because it, it, it grosses me out so much, and, and because I, I, like, who knows what's in there, right? And, and so we would tell her over and over again, Hadley, you can't do that. You can't do that. Listen. Hadley, if you drink the bath water, you're going to get sick. It's not good for you to do that. If you continue to drink the stuff that's in there that's all around you, you're going to get sick. Um, I think that the American church, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to just harp on the American church. I'm sure this is true of a number of different churches. It's just this is the church I know, right? I think that the American church is a lot like Hadley. And that is, it's not that gross. Um, and that is that we actually find ourselves sitting around and we are constantly surrounded by the impurity of the world and of the culture around us, by this gross stuff around us. But we're sitting there in the middle of it and we sit in it just long enough that it starts to feel comfortable. And, and you and I live in a hypersexualized, if you have a desire, feed it kind of culture that normalizes sin and makes light of it. And when we sit in something long enough, which by the way, there's nothing wrong, like we can't help that we're in it. This is part of what it is to be human and to live on this world, that we are going to be surrounded by those things. But, but sometimes if we're not careful, we tend to get comfortable with those things. And the sin that we're surrounded by first becomes normal to us, and then it begins to be appealing to us. And then we start drinking in the impurities of the world around us that we, we truthfully, most people who follow Jesus, I don't know if I can say this, most people, a lot of people who follow Jesus have entertainment habits that look just like all the people who don't follow Jesus. We, we watch the same kinds of things that the world does, and we treat sexuality, whether that's on a screen or with our own bodies, in much the same way that our 
uh, non-Christian brothers and sisters do. We laugh at the same kinds of things. We chase the same kind of things with the same level of intensity, with the same kind of greed, and the same kind of I've got to have more attitude that so much of the world has around us. Paul says about those things that this kind of behavior should not even be heard of among us. So he says in Ephesians 5 that these are not small things, that they are an affront to the God who created us and saved us. And not only that, 1 Peter 2.11 says that these things, as much as we might see them as little, he uses this phrase, that these things war against your soul. That is, they may seem small, but they are out to destroy you. Whether you follow Jesus or not, whether a person is a Christian or not, when they are engaging in these kinds of things, that those things are working from the inside to make you less human, to turn you inwards on yourself instead of out towards other people and towards the God who made you and loves you, and it's robbing you of who you are. So the question is, how do we, if we can't help that we're going to live here, this is the world that we're in. Jesus says that we're to be in the world, but not of it. Um, so he's not taking us out of it. He's leaving us here. So how do we live in a world like this without drinking it in, without consuming it um, along with the rest of the world? Um, I want to give you three things tonight. I wanted to give you five things, uh, but, but there just wasn't going to be enough time. So cut it down to three things from this text that I think Paul gives us as ways that we live um, in the culture without drinking it in, without becoming like the world that we're a part of. Um, The first one is this, live intentionally. And this comes from verses 15 through 17. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Um, a lot of you in high school, I, I've talked to a number of students before, some of you in this room, and you totally fit this, um, fit this bill, you know what it's like. A lot of you in high school were the kind of kid that were smart enough, and high school just came easy enough to you that you made straight A's, and you didn't really even have to study. Like, you didn't, you didn't really even have to, like, do the work to be able to get A's. You would just kind of show up, take the, you might show up, you know, when they kind of review the test, and then you show up and you just like ace it. And, and high school came easy to you. You didn't really even have to try. Um, but for most of you, if you were in that boat, um, that first semester of college was a little bit of a shock to the system, right? Like I've talked to enough college students who have been in that boat where they're like, okay, this is a different kind of world. And you, you get about a month into that freshman year and you go, oh crap, I have to actually like try here, right? Like I got, I'm gonna have to start doing stuff if I wanna pass. I'm gonna have to start being disciplined. I'm gonna have to start putting some effort into this. Uh, godliness and maturity and Christ-likeness, uh, these things are way more like college than high school. And what I mean by that is that you do not ever drift your way into maturity and godliness. That doesn't happen by accident. You can't, you can't just kind of float around and then suddenly you find yourself being more mature one day and more godly. It, it takes intentionality. It takes uh, wisdom to be able to do those things. He says in here, make the most of the time because the days are evil. The idea is that if you don't use the time given to you well, sin will use it. 
evil around you will use it. It keeps working even when you're not. It's kind of like this stream that you're in. And, and if you ever stop paddling, it's going to keep pushing you back and back. You can't be unintentional. You cannot be unwise about those things. You need to be to continue moving forward. So that means that you're going to need to be in the Word. You need to know this Word so that you can know, so that you can discern what Christ's will is, what Jesus' will is for your life, and how to apply this into your life. Uh, you need to surround yourself with good and godly community. You need to be someone who is wise. Uh, a lot of followers of Jesus get themselves in trouble because uh, they want to do what's right, but not necessarily what's wise. Because they want to do the right thing, they want to avoid wrong things, but they're not willing to put the work and the effort into avoiding foolish things. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, A lot of people, when they approach things like alcohol or drinking, or like girlfriends and boyfriends relationships, they only ask one question. And that question is, is this okay? Is it okay for me to drink alcohol, to consume alcohol? And, and if the answer is yes, then sweet, jump in and do it. Is it okay for my girlfriend to come over to my apartment late at night and it just be us watching a movie together or hanging out there together? And the answer to that, biblically, you want to know if it's okay with you biblically to do that? Yes. There is no law or command in the Bible that says that you can't have your girlfriend or boyfriend over to your apartment late at night. That's not, and if, and if I ever find out that you do that, I will never like condemn you as a sinful person. For I'm not, that's, There's nothing against that. But there's a second question that needs to be asked in those moments, and that is, is this wise, though? Is that like, am I setting myself up for failure to do those things? Um, uh, man, I may be of age. I may be 21, and it's totally okay for me to have a drink. The, the Bible doesn't here condemn having a drink. It does, it does speak against alcohol or, or getting drunk. Sorry, it speaks against drunkenness, but it doesn't speak against having a drink. But, but the question isn't just is it okay, but also is it wise? In light of the type of environment that I'm in tonight, or in light of my past, um, whether that's my failures or whether my family history or whatever, is this the wisest thing for me to do? And let me just give you one third question is, how does this affect the cause of Jesus? And so, like, um, man, it may be you and your girlfriend may be sitting like six feet apart on the couch all night, and you may not get yourself in any trouble, and that's totally great. Um, but, like, what does, uh, what does your unbelieving roommate think when they see your roommate go over to your house at night? Like, what are they assuming of you? And, and those are things that are just worth us thinking about, um, to not just ask, is it okay, but is it wise? I think those are important. Uh, the second big thing that Paul gives in here is this. Be filled with the Spirit. Verses 18 through 21, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, This concept of being filled with the Spirit is one that I have wrestled to get my arms around, to get mentally my mind around this for a very long time. I spent a lot of hours reading and studying and trying to figure out what exactly does it mean, what exactly does it look like to be filled by the Spirit when a person is filled with that. And, and I'll tell you today that I still don't know if I fully get it. 
I still don't know if I fully understand it, but we do get some hints of it here in this text. Um, other points in the Bible, um, the writers will use this same phrase to talk about someone being filled with grief, or someone being filled with joy, or someone being filled with excitement or knowledge. Um, and the idea, whenever we see that, we know what that means. It means that that thing, grief or joy or excitement, dominates and describes that person. If I'm filled with excitement, it means it is dominating my actions, it is dominating the, the way I'm kind of moving, my facial expressions, and it also accurately describes kind of the whole of who I am in my situation. And so uh, I think this is what Paul is getting at with being filled with the Spirit. It is that the Spirit dominates and controls your life, and that is the best way to describe you. Is, man, I can see the Spirit at work in Jacob. I can see the Spirit at work in Micah. Those kinds of things. She is Spirit-driven. She's being Spirit-moved in those things. Um, we cannot live the life that we're called to live by our own willpower. All these things that Paul tells us not to do or to do, whatever it is, he, he doesn't expect that we're just supposed to, by our own sheer uh, human determination, make that work. The idea is that the Spirit himself, God himself, the third member of the Trinity, inhabits and enables us to do those things. And we can't manipulate that, um, but we can live in such a way that makes our lives available to him. We do that through a few things, Paul says, through Christ-centered worship with other believers, which we're about to do in a moment. When we get together, when we sing, and we sing about the things that Jesus has done for us, it opens our hearts to him to be more uh, loving and more responded to him as we are worshiping together. Um, that leads to this next one that Paul says, uh, that we give thanks in the name of Jesus, which is a really interesting one. By the way, I, I told you to look for contrast. Did you notice at the very beginning of this, when Paul says, don't, there shouldn't be any crude joking or obscenities, he says, but instead, there should be, and, and you would expect him to say, um, clean joking, or no joking, or something like that. That's not what he says. The contrast to the obscenities or crude joking, he says, is there ought to be thankfulness. The thing, when you open your mouth, what ought to pour out is gratitude. Um, it has been said that sin at its root is simply this ingratitude. That I, I am not content with what God has given me and so I will chase after something else. That's, that's at its core, sin. There's something else that I need more than God or what he has given me. Romans one twenty one actually seems to say this. That at the root of human sin is a failure to acknowledge and thank God and to have gratitude for what he's given us. And this would mean that at the root of faithful obedience is thankfulness, is gratitude. Um, one preacher likes to say that we ought to be experts in God's goodness to us. You ought to, you ought to know God's faithfulness in your life like the back of your hand. You ought to think about it so often. We ought, to, we ought to be able to recount all that he has done for us in Jesus, all his goodness. Do you know how hard it is to cheat on your wife when you spend all your time thanking God for your wife? Do you know how hard it is to want uh, to go towards sexual temptation when you spend so much time thanking God for the beauty and the blessings that he's given you to himself in Jesus? And then it's, it's hard to then push off against what you've been thanking him for and run over here after sin. Not impossible, 
but it is hard. So gratitude opens us up to allow the Spirit to lead us. Um, second is this, or the third thing he says, and this one's kind of a curveball, comes out of left field. Another way we open ourselves up to be filled by the Spirit is by submitting to one another in fear or reverence of Christ. That when we live in self-sacrificing ways and in humility, um, that that works in us. And, and by the way, that verse right there is what's going to launch us into what we're doing next week. Into, into like this whole section is an outline of what it means to submit to one another. It's going to be really fun for the next couple weeks. Um, third thing is this. Remember who you are. Third thing Paul would give us for fighting its culture. Remember who you are. Okay, here's what I want you to do. If you've got your notes, I want you to draw this circle here. You can draw both circles if you want, okay? I want you to draw both circles. You can have darkness or sin of the world here, and you can have Christ over here. In Christ, in the world. In Christ, in the world. Um, You can draw that there. If you just want to look up here, that's fine. And here's what I want to ask you. Based on the last two or three weeks of your life, if you were just kind of look back over your last few weeks, where would you place yourself in this circle? Like, how far in Christ are you? Would you put yourself right there in the middle? Would you put yourself over here on the edge? Maybe you would say something like this. Like, over the last couple weeks, mark on that piece of paper or on this board mentally in your head, based on the last couple weeks of your life and how you've engaged in these things, where would you place yourself? Take just 10 seconds to do that. Okay, um, I don't know where you placed yourself, uh, but the truth of the matter is actually that was a trick question. Uh, because what the Bible says and describes to us is this, that there is no such thing as more or less in Christ. What Colossians says is you were rescued from the dominion of darkness and you have been brought into the kingdom of the one you love. And Paul never uses the phrase more in Christ. And he never uses the phrase, less in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him, this is where you are. And and no matter how good you've been in the last week or how bad you've been in the last week, it doesn't matter. You are in Christ. And when God looks at you, what he sees is Jesus. And what he sees is his righteousness. And, and, And your failures don't define you. And your mistakes, all the things that we just read, and the ways that maybe you've blown it just like me. By the way, when I've been talking about the American church, I I, I include Drew in that, because I am just as susceptible at sliding into these kinds of things. But the beautiful thing is that there is no such thing as Drew being a little bit less in Christ this week. And hopefully next week we can get a little bit more in Christ. No, no, no. I am simply in Christ because of what he's done for me in dying to make a way for me to be in on what God wants for me. And this truth, this truth brings comfort, rebuke, and encouragement. It brings comfort because if you have blown it, you are no less in Christ than you would have been if you had a perfect record. If you read, whichever one of if there's someone in you who has read their Bible every day this whole year, you've always had a quiet time, you've always done the right thing, you've never done something, you've never said something to a roommate that you regretted, right? You 
are no further ahead when it comes to being in Christ than anybody else in here. We're all in Christ. Um, now, there, there is such a thing as being closer to Jesus relationally, right? When I walk in the ways of Jesus, when I am listening to him, when I am trying to hear from him, when I'm trying to be faithful, then yes, I have a closer relationship. I have a better ability to hear him, to know him, to love him. And so there can be kind of a relational distance and a relational closeness. But the position that I'm in, the situation I'm in, never actually changes. And so your failure does not define you. It can also be a bit of a rebuke. Because if we are in Christ, that means that we dishonor him when we live like the world that we make the life that is in Christ look a lot like the life that is in the world sometimes. And Paul says that this should not be heard of among God's holy people. But this truth is also a profound encouragement. And this is what I want you to hear and what I want you to come away with. What it means to be in Christ is that no matter how how deep sin feels like it has its, its, its grasp in on you, no matter how thick and heavy the chains it seems to have on you, if, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, the Bible says no matter what it feels like here, this is not where you sit anymore. This is not you, that you've been rescued out of this, and so you are not bound by this. No matter how many times you've fallen back into the same sin, no matter how many times it's, it feels like an addiction to you, um, you don't have to continue in it. It does not have to own you. One of the best things, actually, you can say to yourself when tempted, I think this is worth saying out loud, um, whenever temptation comes your way in a specific uh, instance, you're tempted to give in to sexual sin, to greed, to gossip, to pride, whatever it is, saying this out loud, that's not who I am. It's not, I know that this, this feels enticing, but the truth is that's, that's not me. That's not who God has made me. That might be who I used to be, but that's not who I am. Paul says this, you are no longer darkness. You are light in Jesus Christ. And so the plea from this passage is that we would live this way. Um, by the way, um, some of you might have actually said, man, I'm out here because I know I'm not in Christ. And, and, and there is such a thing as kind of close. When you're in the realm of darkness, there is such a thing as closer and further. Some people want nothing to do with Jesus. Some are trying to figure this thing out. And some are actually very curious, but they're unsure of how to make this jump. Or they're unsure of whether they want to. Or they're unsure of whether this is worth living. But the good news is you don't have to actually make the jump. Uh, that Jesus does it for you. Um, that, that by placing our faith in him, he, he pulls us out of this and rescues us into this. And the, the other really good news is it's totally worth it. Uh, this is the life you and I were made for. This is the life that we were designed to live. This is, this is the relationship that God has been calling you into from the day you were born and, and longs to have with you. And, and so my hope for all of us is that we will live in the joy and the hope of what it means to be found in Jesus and not in ourselves, not in our failures, not in our successes, but only in Christ. Um, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to spend some time uh, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, singing to Jesus at Thanksgiving. So let's do that. Dear God, uh, I don't even know. Some of this is a heavy topic, and, uh, and so I'm just going to trust you with it, Lord. I don't for the people in this room who need to feel the heavy conviction, Lord, I pray that you would let them feel it. 
and for the people in this room who need to feel uh, the joy of being set free from their sin and of being forgiven and to feel that grace, which is something I know that you want all of us to feel. God, I pray that you would let us feel that. And I pray that we would walk away not looking at ourselves and thinking about how much we suck, but that we would look to you and just think about how good you are, that you would help us to be um, experts in your faithfulness to us. Holy Spirit, do what each one of us needs in our own heart through this time of reflection and this time of singing together. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.